Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll pray and then get to work. Exodus chapter 31, I will read all 18 verses. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. And the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a solemn rest. Excuse me, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have already experienced encouragement by the truth that we've been able to put to song. I still have that thought dwelling. In my mind, we have the Spirit dwelling. We have uh, the Father smiling. And Jesus, you died to win us. Thank you for that good news. And God, I do pray that that good news would inform the way that we understand the law. That as we read from and study uh, your law, which Christ has fulfilled, help us to understand it in light of the finished work, in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection. Lord, you say that all Scripture is profitable. 
that teaches, corrects, rebukes, it trains us in righteousness. And we ask now, Lord, that you would prove that to be true through the preaching of your word. We're thankful, God, that you use weak vessels because you get the glory. And that's what we're asking for, Lord, that you would get glory as we hear and respond to your word. So, God, do the kind of work that only you can do. Lead us to joy, lead us to obedience, lead us to repentance as each is necessary and bring glory to your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. How many of you have been enjoying the Winter Olympics? Anybody? We got a few observers. Others aren't real into it. Well, we've been into it. In fact, we had no TV reception, uh, but with the Olympics coming, we went and got a new antenna to make sure we could get the reception. And you're wondering, did he seriously say that? He went and got a new antenna? That's right, got a new antenna, and it's fancy, and it gets us reception. We have been enjoying the Olympics through that antenna, uh, our boys especially. They've been getting pretty into it. It's fun if you're at our house. Uh, for no apparent reason, uh, you'll hear boys chanting, USA, USA, and USA may, not, may or may not be on the screen, uh, but it is the team spirit that counts. Uh, they are also particularly fond of President Putin, um, Probably because when you're five and six, that last name makes you snicker just a little bit. But we also showed him the pictures that have been found in the hotel rooms of Putin without his shirt on flexing and doing it with wild animals and so forth. They really like that. One of my more uh, favorite moments with the boys is uh, we happen to be watching the biathlon, you know, so cross-country skiing and shooting with the rifles. And my oldest, Liam, asks, what are they doing? And I said, well, they ski and they shoot guns and a, a startled look comes upon his face at each other. <laughs> no, no, not at each other. They shoot at targets. But on a more serious note, when it comes to the Olympics, there's a reason that we enjoy. I think there's a reason that we enjoy watching the Olympics. There's a reason that we enjoy observing these Olympians. And that's because Olympians are a peculiar people. And what I mean by that is they're a rare breed. There is not Many like them in that a very, very small percentage of people from each country, maybe not even each country, get to participate. They are set apart by their country to represent them in these winter games. And so there is a sense, religious sense, there is a sense in which you could say they're they're holy to their country in that in the meaning that holiness refers to being set apart. That's what they are for their country and that's why we like to watch them they can do things that the majority of the world cannot do that's why they're there and if we were to go to follow them to their hometowns and follow their their training regimens and what they ate we would probably say who are you i mean seriously who lives like this Because the intensity of their training is so severe and their diet in terms of caloric intake is just crazy. And so if we were to observe their lives, we would see, in a sense, a kind of holiness. And again, not a religious holiness, but they're just set apart. They live differently than the people around them so that they can go and represent their country, hopefully to bring their country 
glory. You get gold or any of the metals, you bring your country glory. And so I think you can see that you guys have been studying the book of Exodus. There are some similarities, right? These Olympians are set apart so that they can bring their country glory. There's things about their lives. They have routines that set them apart and make them different. And similarly, Israel, they had routines or they had rhythms of life that were different than the people surrounding them. They were a holy people and therefore they had holy rhythms of life. And so that's what we're talking about this morning Today's sermon title, Holy People, Holy Rhythms. And in Exodus 31, the rhythm of life that I'm talking about is the rhythm of work and the rhythm of rest, or you could say the rhythm of of working and resting. So that's just, your outline's pretty simple. Verses 1 through 11 is holy work, and then 12 to 17 is holy rest. And you're wondering about verse 18. Uh, it's an important verse. I'm going to let whoever's up, who's ever on deck for next week, just do that because I've got enough here. And there's plenty that could be said about that one verse of God handing these stone tablets that has the law written by the finger of God on them. So this morning, let me, this eh, already lost this afternoon, used to morning this afternoon. Let me give you the big idea Uh, that I'm aiming to present, just so you know full well where we are heading. The big idea is this. As God's holy people, we have the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's holy work and God's holy rest. Let me repeat that. As God's holy people, we have the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's holy work and God's holy rest. And so as we jump into this text, I'm going to show you how this is true of Israel. And then we'll see how does this apply to us, the church, those who are no longer under this Mosaic covenant, but are under the new covenant. So in verses 1 to 11, we see Israel's holy work, namely the construction of of the tabernacle and all that goes with it. So the furnishings, priestly garments and supplies. What you guys have studied up to this point in chapters 25 to 30, there's been great detail given as to what was to be made concerning the tabernacle. And now God is spelling out how exactly that is going to be made. But when you look at this work, the work of building the temple, it can seem that it's so overtly religious. Well, of course it's holy work. They're building a temple, duh. I mean, we just kind of think naturally anything temple is holy or religious. And, and that would be true. Uh, it is definitely holy because God intends to dwell there. The reason this work is holy isn't so much that the actual work that they're doing with their hands is sacred, because honestly, what are they doing? They're, well, they're craftsmen. They're doing the various tasks of craftsmen. Up to that point in time in human history, had people seen craftsmanship before? Of course they had. I'm sure other nations with other gods had made their own temples, right? And they probably had people who could work with gold and with fabrics, and they made priestly garments. So that probably wasn't totally unique. Even the people of Israel, these craftsmen who were called to this task, 
they were probably already mechanically inclined and craftsmen, but God, as we'll see, endows them with a special ability to perform the task that he has entrusted to them. So it isn't actually the making of these things that makes this work so holy, but rather the purpose. The purpose being God is going to dwell among his people. That's out of the ordinary. That doesn't happen every day. There's no other people on the face of the earth at that time that can say, oh yeah, the God of the universe, he dwells in our midst. Can't be said. And so in making the tabernacle, God's design is to be with them, to dwell with them. And we can see that in a couple of places. And I should just say as a parenthesis, I am always in danger of too many cross references. I just love the way that scripture just supports itself and clarifies itself. So you don't have to go to everyone. You can write them down if you want. And then you can judge afterward if there was too many cross references. But I'm just drawing out that God's intention isn't just to make a cool place. God's intention in instructing his people to build this tabernacle is to have a place for him to live. Not because he's homeless, but because he wants to be with his people. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, 45 and 46. Excuse me, 45 and 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why did he bring them out of the land of Egypt? That I might dwell among them. This isn't ordinary stuff to have the creator God in your midst. That's why this is a holy work. They're working to prepare a place for God to come and be with them. Now, I know if you've been going through this whole book, I, I listened to a couple messages just to see kind of where this series was going. Certainly you've hit probably multiple times. I know Joe addressed it the last time he preached this idea in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 that really the whole point of this covenant, the whole point um, of God making this people his own is so that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which means they don't exist just for themselves. It's not just we're a holy nation and a holy huddle. We're, a, we're meant to be a kingdom of priests. We're a mediator between other nations. We're hoping that through us, other nations will see Yahweh and his glory. So, We've got this holy work of building the temple because the temple is ultimately about not just pretty buildings. The temple is about God dwelling in their midst. And for God to dwell in their midst, that goes right along the lines of God making Israel his treasured possession so that they could reflect his glory to the nations. We'll talk more about that. But let me just read Exodus 19, 5 and 6. This comes just before the Ten Commandments, kind of like the preamble to the Constitution now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you, if you will obey all that I'm about to instruct you in and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's, that's the point of all of this. That's the point of the temple. Why am I going to dwell in your midst? Well, you're my people and I'm your God. And I want to display my glory through you to the nations. It's not exactly the same as the commission that we have as the church, but there are similarities and we will explore those. So, in looking at this holy work that Israel has been called to do, 
I said in the big idea that there's a privilege and responsibility. Privilege and responsibility. Joy and duty. A privilege and a responsibility to do this holy work. And so why would we call this work a privilege? This tabernacle building work. Why would that be a privilege? Is it not a privilege to have the holy creator and gracious redeemer dwell in your midst? I mean, is that not a privilege? Moses was trying to, well, God through Moses was trying to help his people understand that in Deuteronomy. Understand this idea. This is a privilege to have God in your midst. And so Deuteronomy 4, 7, this question is asked, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? What other nation is there that has that? Begs the answer of, there isn't one. Or if you go farther in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 32 and 34, as I read this, you'll just get a sense. There's privilege here of being God's chosen people. Starting in verse 32, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Has that ever happened before? And Israel should have been standing there thinking, uh uh-uh. What a privilege that this God would choose us, not because we're mightier or greater by any means, but just because He chose us to display His glory and reflect Him to the nations. And so the privilege and responsibility is pretty easy to see. The privilege is, is just like, wow, we don't deserve this responsibility. If God shows up, chooses you as a nation to reflect His glory, you can kind of sense the responsibility. Uh, we, we better get this right. We better get this right because God is choosing us to reflect His glory to the nations. What we see throughout Scripture that's particularly astounding, and it's here in this passage, is that God regularly wants to display His glory. And that may not be the surprise. I'm sure you've been well taught and you know how God-centered God is. That's not so amazing. I mean, it is amazing that He displays His glory, but that just seems normal, like just like Water is wet, so God displays His glory. What's amazing is that He does it through people. That's the amazing piece. Why would God do that, and yet He so regularly chooses to display His glory through people? Which is an amazing thing. But the reality is, whenever God wants to display His glory through His people, whenever He calls them to that task, He will always equip them for the task. When God wants to equip His people to display His glory, or when, he, when He calls His people to display His glory, He equips them to do so. And that's what we see exactly happening here. Part of the way that God is going to display His glory is through His manifest presence at the tabernacle. That's how it's going to happen. And so the tabernacle is a pretty big deal. And so when He calls them to make these intricate designs, He's going to equip them, that is, empower them to carry out the task. So what we see 
in this is that God has called these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. If anyone's wondering what to name the next child, there's a couple of good options. Bezalel and Aholiab. Under them, they have these numerous craftsmen who are also called to do the work. And God has, specifically with Bezalel and Aholiab, He's given nothing less than His very own Spirit. And with His Spirit comes knowledge and intelligence and uh, ability and craftsmanship. He gives them all that is needed. And then we'll see later, He moves in the hearts of the people to provide all of the raw materials to make it happen. So, God calls and He equips. And I I want us to just recognize those points because that's going to apply to us. Um, So, two key principles. I've said them already, but I just want to highlight them. First, God regularly uses His people to accomplish His sacred purposes. God regularly uses His people to accomplish His most sacred purposes. Displaying His glory, that's a sacred, holy purpose. Second, whenever God calls His people to do that, He also equips them to do it. And so He doesn't say, hey, just just figure it out. He says, I will equip you to do this. So I want to show you that reality because I think it's important and it's going to apply to us. God calls to accomplish His most sacred purposes, uses people and equips us to do it. And so we'll see if this works. I want to look at God makes a promise to accomplish a specific purpose. In this case, it's going to be uh, dwelling among His people. And then we see in some way the fulfillment of that promise. So here's one end, here's point A, here's point B. He fulfills the promise. He will actually dwell among His people. But, but how do we get from point A to point B? And that's, you'll see where I'm going with that. So promise. Exodus 29:45. Here's the promise. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. God makes that promise. And that's part of His sacred purpose. Dwelling among His people, remember, is a big deal. Does it actually happen? The answer is yes. You'll get to see it at the end of this book. The very last paragraph of this book, Exodus 40, 34 to 38, we're going to see God fulfill that promise. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Did he fulfill his promise? He did. He absolutely did. But how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from promise to the fulfillment? He used his people. And that might seem obvious, no-brainer, but that's a big deal. He uses people. That's exactly what we get in Exodus 1 to 11. How do we get from the promise to the fulfillment? You have all the instruction, then you have verses 1 to 11. He gives people to get the job done. So God makes a promise. He fulfills the promise through working through people. Why do I frame it like that? Because I want to frame, that, frame it the same way as we start apply this to the church. God has made a promise to the New Testament church. It goes like this. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. 
Jesus says, I will build my church. And I wish there were more time to trace this, this motif. I think you guys have already touched on that the church is in a way like a new temple. It's a, it's a, it's a living building. We're the stones that go into it coming from First Peter. But there's a similarity here between this new temple of sorts that the church is and the old one. So God has promised, I will build my church. But he's not talking about a building. He's talking about people. So here's the question. He makes that promise, but does he do it? Will he actually fulfill that promise? Well, John, the revelator, gives us an answer. He gives us a pretty good idea. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. This is John's vision in heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who is that gathered in heaven from every tongue, tribe, and nation and people? Who is that? It's the church. Does Jesus build his church? He does. He will do it. Point A, I will build my church. Point B, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation saying, worthy is the lamb. It happens. But here's the million-dollar question. How does it happen? Now we're starting to apply this text to us. How do we get from point A to point B? He uses people. Here's one of the clearest scriptural answers to how we get from point A, promise I will build my church, to point B, people around the throne worshiping. Here's the answer. You want to know how God does it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the answer. How do they get there? He works through us. That's amazing. So just as God would work through his people, Israel, to display his glory, through the old covenant temple building, so he works through us to display his glory through the church. I think that's a valid connection. He calls us to play part in this most sacred purpose, and he equips us. He calls Aholiab and Bezalel and the craftsmen, and he equips them. He calls us, and he equips us. But you will receive what? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I'm just trying to make clear that God calls us to his most sacred purposes. He uses people. And when he calls us, when he calls us, who he wants to use us, he will equip us. The task that he called Israel to was an amazing task. God's going to dwell in their midst. The task that he calls us to is an amazing task that we would play a role in getting people from every tribe, tongue and nation before the throne of Jesus to sing his praises. That's an amazing task that's been entrusted to us. 
just as the temple was not going to be built apart from men and women using their skills to make gold and to make garments and to make oil and to make incense. It wasn't going to happen. The temple wasn't going to fall out of the sky. Similarly, God will build his church, but he's not going to do it apart from using people, which is an amazing thing. So we could spend an entire message just making that connection between this old temple and this new temple of sorts and the final temple in Revelation. But all of this to say, God has called us to a most sacred purpose, to build his church. And that comes obviously through reaching out to lost people. And that comes through building up the saints. And he intends to use each of us for that task. Now, I will just to make a few clarifications, because I could make it sound like the Old Testament and New Testament are identical and flatten some of the discontinuity and there is there's a difference in the old testament god did want to show his glory through his people but it was more of a come and see right it was it was centralized in a geographic region particularly around even a sacred building a a well tabernacle at first and then a temple in the new testament god wants to display his glory through his people but it's not come and see any longer it's go and tell we go outward and so i think there is there's a difference It was more attractional in the Old Testament that we see guys like Jonah, but now it's definitely much more outward. Both are connected to this temple motif throughout Scripture, and that would be a fun study in and of itself, but you can trace the temple motif. There's a kind of temple in Genesis in the garden that man is to expand, and then there's this real temple that Israel had, and then there's this temple called the church, and there's this final temple in Revelation. So you could study that on another time. Old Testament temple, physical, geographical, New Testament temple, spiritual, and geographically decentralized. And I know that some of these points have already been made, but if we go to either Ephesians 2 or 1 Peter 2, we will see that that's God's design is to make us a kind of temple. In Ephesians 2, we see that the church, Ephesians 2.20, we see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And similarly, first Peter two refers to us as though that those are we're living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. And then it goes on to make that connection. We're a a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. Hey, that's what God said of Israel. Yeah, and that commission has been given to us that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. So I have said that the big idea is as God's holy people, we have the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's holy work and God's holy rest. Do we have that sense of privilege and responsibility when it comes to building the church? I think we probably get the sense of responsibility more clearly because I think all of us on any day of the week have a sense of low-grade guilt because of our lack of reaching lost people. I think that's probably true of most Christians 
Is there's just a general sense of I should be doing more to build the church? So we have the sense of responsibility that we ought to be doing that very thing. But do we have the sense of privilege? We have the sense of privilege that we, we get to do this. I just I think about what Oholi Eben Bezalel had the opportunity to do. Are you serious? We get to lead this task? I mean, we get to help build this thing? So that God's presence can dwell here, there, surely there had to be a sense of privilege. And if I can't, I can't think of anyone I know that's made something really fascinating, but maybe you know some famous architect. I know the guy who made that. Or, not a famous architect, but maybe just a home builder that built a house for maybe one of the trailblazers. Yeah, the house that that guy lives in. I don't know the trailblazers' names because I haven't lived around here long enough. Been gone too long. Yeah, my buddy, he, built, he was part of building that house. There's just a sense of, wow, you got to do that? When we read the heavenly scene of people, every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne worshiping the lamb who was slain, is there a sense of privilege? <laughs> we get to help get those people there? Like, that's part of our job description? No way! I realize it's easy to, that's so easy to preach. It's really easy to say it's different to wake up tomorrow morning you know, when it's still dark and you've got to go to work and you're thinking, oh yeah, I've got to help build the church. About that, Lord, I better get on that. I understand. We're not emotionally energized by it all the time, but that's part of what we're doing in this message is asking God to restore that sense of privilege just as the people of Israel had, that we would have the sense of privilege in building the church. The one thing that I would say just to kind of accentuate the responsibility piece, and, it, and it's not meant to motivate by guilt. Guilt is a, is a terrible, terrible motivator. So I'm not trying to, when I, when I approach these points, I'm not trying to approach them from a perspective of guilt, but I'm just thinking of the gifts that had been given to Oholiab and Bezalel. And I'm just trying to imagine what would the scenario have been like if those two men said, uh, sorry, Moses, we're really busy. Um, it's just not going to work this year. Maybe next year? Or if the craftsmen say, oh, yeah, we've, uh, we love our work. We love building stuff. But have you seen our, our prospective job? We've got a lot of work to do. This, temple ain't, this tabernacle ain't getting done for a while. Sorry, Moses. I mean, he would be, Moses would be pulling out his hair. What are you talking about? God has called you to this. This is an amazing task. He's called you to it. And you don't even have any excuses because he's given you everything you need to do it. And so I think there could be a similarity between the way that we think about the mission that God has called us to. There's just a reluctance. But we have even more reason, I would say, this side of the cross, to feel that sense of responsibility because while God gave his Holy Spirit, temporarily at least, so they would have these gifts of craftsmanship. God has given each of us gifts, and they're blood-bought gifts. Spiritual gifts are blood-bought gifts. Why do I say that? If you look at Ephesians 4, you will see that spiritual gifts are a result of the cross. Jesus gets to give them as a, as a conquering warrior gets to give gifts after he's won a battle so jesus gives gifts to his church and that comes because of his resurrection ephesians 4 7 to 12 but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of christ's gift 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When he ascended, when he resurrected, he gave gifts to men. Just, just because now there's going to be this parenthesis. I'm like, Paul, what are you talking about? But then he's going to pick up this gift theme again. Verse 9, and saying he, is, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended in the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So a little parenthesis from Paul, not unlike him. Verse 11, and he gave... We're talking about gifts again, those gifts that he gave when he rose and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Those are blood bought gifts. The reason we have apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, God gave those gifts. And I recognize those are we would probably call those offices, maybe not spiritual gifts per se, but those come as a result of. Of the resurrection, Jesus won the right to give those gifts so that that could be the means by which he builds his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, equipping the saints for the work of service. But the saints, they too have been given blood bought gifts. And I think I'm pretty sure that's why Peter tells us to be good stewards of the grace that's been given us. First Peter four ten and 11, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Be a good steward of grace. The grace of God in Jesus and his death and resurrection. One of the blessings that comes out of the cross is a spiritual gift to serve him. So be a good steward of that gift. I hope that this creates a sense of, wow, this gift I have, if I'm not using this gift, there should be just a sense of, whoa, I need to be a good steward of this because it came at the cost of my Savior's blood. That's how I got this gift. And before we bring this to an end, I just want to say, with respect to doing holy work, it's, it's easy to look at this Old Testament passage and see building a temple. And you realize, but God, ha- I mean, yeah, God has called us all to the Great Commission, but I spend, I will spend, you will spend 80,000 plus hours of your life in the workplace. The workplace might be an office. The workplace might be your home with your children. But it's not always going to feel super spiritual. Most of your building the church, reaching the lost is going to happen along the way while you're just in a mundane place, wherever you call work, maybe wherever you're going to be tomorrow morning, whether you're in an actual location or you're at home. But just just as a reminder, that's where God has called you to build his church. By building, again, I'm referring to reaching out to lost people. Or perhaps your job enables you, maybe you're a teacher at a Christian school, I know one, and that enables you to build up. It's a, there is evangelizing that obviously goes on at a Christian school, but maybe your job allows you to edify the saints in that kind of church building. So, that is the holy work that is ours. The holy work of Israel in this context was building the tabernacle, and for us, it's building the church, so that God's glory would be displayed. Now there's holy rest. And this comes in verses 12 to 17. So this is the other part of the rhythm. And I'll have to go through this a little bit faster. But as you remember, the big idea is that as God's holy people, we have the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's holy work and God's holy rest. 
So in what way are we as Christians meant to participate in God's holy rest? Things get a little more interesting here. And I would say in studying this passage, if I'm totally honest, when I got the assignment from Joe, I first looked at it like, a holy hub in Bezalel and the Sabbath? Wow. This won't take long. This will be like a 15-minute sermon. And there you have... This was actually so helpful for me because I can say, I just haven't thought much about the Sabbath. And I, trust me, I'm not going to come and convince you to be Sabbatarians. That is those who observe a Saturday Sabbath. Uh, but I would say that I just don't think we think as Christians enough about the Sabbath. We just, we easily say, well, that's the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled it. Don't worry about what day you observe. Just go to church on Sunday and call it good. I was just really helped by this, and there's a lot here, uh, and like only a fraction of it, and the time that remains will make it into what I'm about to say. Um, And I don't know if you guys covered this already, but let me just really fast outline four Christian views of the Sabbath. So there are four approaches to the Sabbath um, in the evangelical church, and you can hold these views and still be friends with people that hold different views, okay? So there's four of them. They're not anti-gospel. They don't undermine the gospel. Um, They're just different ways of looking at it. There's the seventh day view. And that's that nothing's changed. Saturday is still the Sabbath. And there's ways of believing that without undermining the gospel. As long as you don't believe it's a requirement for salvation, that's okay. So that's the seventh day view. There's the Christian Sabbath view. And that is the Sabbath requirement remains, but the day changes to Sunday. So same thing requires. No work on Sunday. No work on the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is now Sunday. In light of the resurrection, there's the Lutheran view, and that is that the Sabbath is for Jews alone. You may have Lutheran friends. They may not actually believe this, but Luther, going back to what Luther himself developed, Sabbath is for the Jews alone. Christians should still pursue rest and worship, and they're going to do that on Sunday like we see in the New Testament. And then there is the fulfillment view. Zero Sabbath requirement remains in light of Christ's fulfillment. And if I understand correctly, as I interact with Joe in email, that's where the leaders of this church are going to be. There's a fulfillment view. It's not binding upon us. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant in any way because Christ has fulfilled that for us. He is now our rest. He has completed all the work that we ourselves could not do. (laughs) Excuse me. And that's where I'm at. But there's still there's some principles here related to the Sabbath that. I don't think the application coming out of this is going to be something totally revolutionary and totally new. I've never heard this before. I just think what it does do, it puts, some, it puts the weight of biblical theology behind the importance of this gathering. That's one of the things it does. I mean, you could go, there's a lot to be said about the Sabbath and how Christians understand it. But one of it is I think it just enriches what this gathering is meant to accomplish. So, If we look at the text, we can see pretty easily the Sabbath is a big deal to Israel in that day. Verse 13, above all, that's a big statement, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Verse 14 says, everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. And then very next sentence, whoever does any work on it, thank you, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off. From among his people. Verse 15. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. This seems to be a pretty big deal. God doesn't put people to death willy nilly. 
I don't like you. That's not what this is about. But the Sabbath is obviously a big deal. What's the big deal? The big deal, here's the angle I'm going to approach. There's a lot of ways you could go with this, but I'm going to talk about the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant. That's what the text says. If you look at verse 13, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths for, here's a little bit of explanation as to why, this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. This is a sign of the covenant. If you go down farther to verse 16 and 17, therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever, verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. So it's a sign. So the Sabbath is a sign under the Mosaic Covenant for Israel, just like circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. We, under the New Covenant, we have a sign, baptism. Baptism is the sign that we have. And all of these are really meant to be, I mean, God takes the outward expression seriously, but the outward expression is always meant to convey an inward reality. So it's not just box checking. Didn't work. Check. Physical circumcision. Check. It, it's meant to communicate more. Got, got wet in some tub. Check. It, they, they're always meant to be more than that. Just like, I mean, this wedding band is a sign of a lifelong commitment I've made with my wife. Now, I can, anyone who's not married could put one on. It doesn't make them married. But if you are married, it's a, it's a fitting symbol of a lifelong commitment. And maybe conversely you could say, my taking this off, notice my wife did not gasp. See, it's not, you know, it's it's just a, it's just a sign. And if maybe men for work, if you're operating power tools, it's a good idea to take this off. That's it's not a problem. It's not like you're violating the spirit of it, but man, this one's for free. If you were to take this off to go out on a night on the town with your buddies to appear single, that would be a problem. Right, ladies? Yes. Yeah. Don't mean to make light of that, but there's some some taking off is no big deal. Other kinds of taking off. So you can interact with the sign, interact with the sign in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's not meaningful. And God intended for this sign, the Sabbath, to be meaningful. It's a sign that they are keeping the covenant with him. God calls Israel to be his people. They call, God calls Israel to be his treasured possession. Part, part of the whole package is not working on Saturday. Now we'll talk about, well, what should they do on Saturday? But just suffice it to say, part of the whole package is not working on Saturday. That was a, repre- a representation that they were committed to God in his covenant. So, If you go to Numbers 15 and you see that poor soul who was collecting sticks on the Sabbath, what happens to him? He's killed. I mean, the world's going to, if the world reads that, you have unbelieving friends and you're doing a Bible study with them and they read that, I think you're going to get some, are you serious? Your God killed that guy for picking up sticks? Give me a break. I mean, that seems absurd. If you don't know what the significance of the sign is. But God has called Israel to be his treasured possession so that they would be a kingdom of priests. 
That is, they're an, they're a mediating nation. They're a priestly nation. Priests mediate between God and man. They as a nation mediate between other nations and God. So they are meant to reflect his glory to the nation so the nations can know God. That's a big deal. That's a privilege. And so that guy who was picking up sticks, it wasn't like he was just do, 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 do. I'm picking up sticks. He's saying, Yahweh, I don't care about being your treasured possession. That's not a priority for me. I got a fire to make because I got food to cook. I don't care about being a priest to other people. I never wanted to be a priest. And that has a different flavor. He's saying, I don't want to know you, God. That's what he's saying. And that's why he is struck dead. It is not the overreaction of a cranky, and self-conscious God. He's saying, this man has declared he wants to be cut off from me. This man, in picking up his sticks, has said, he doesn't want to know me. I'll give him what he wants. Life apart from me. Or death apart from me. So, God always intended, just like this is meant to be something meaningful, God always intended the Sabbath to be something meaningful, not just something to check off. And we can see that in Isaiah 58. You can see this in a few places in Isaiah. In Isaiah 1, God talks about, don't bring me your sacrifices anymore. I'm, I'm tired of them. Why does he say that? Does he say that because God hates sacrifices? No, he commanded them. But if you're going to bring them the way that you guys are bringing them, it's totally meaningless. There's no heart in it. It's all by rote. Just stop. And so a lot of what the prophets are doing, they're calling the people to repentance. And some of it is just, it's not to uh, simply start doing certain activities again, because maybe the people have been doing the religious activities all along. Maybe they have been observing the Sabbath, but they haven't been maintaining the heart behind it, the heart to know God. And so to, to emphasize that, Isaiah 58, verses 12 to 14, he's, God, well, God through Isaiah says to the people, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. So in God's mind, he intended the Sabbath to be a means by which his people could take delight in him. The stick collector in Numbers 15, he had no interest in being delighted in God. He had probably some food he wanted to cook. It's like, delight in God? I'm going to delight myself in some steak. I'm cooking my food. He had no interest. And God, my point in the Sabbath, God says, is for your delight that I would be your delight. The Sabbath is ultimately about knowing God. And we'll see that in, in just a second. But I find it interesting that... The Sabbath, this lengthy exhortation about the Sabbath, comes right after this piece about the tabernacle. Why did God put those together? Now, we don't have an authoritative explanation as to why those texts were put back to back. But it seems like one possible explanation, which I think works, would be this. Israel, why you're doing this sacred task of building the temple, this incredibly, uh, this, this incredible privilege that you have, While you're building the temple where I will dwell to be among you, don't miss the main point, me. If 
ever Israel would have had an opportunity or a reason to excuse themselves from the Sabbath, would it have not been in building the tabernacle? 24-7, boys, we got to get this thing cranked out. God's going to be dwelling pronto. God says, no, I don't want you to miss the point. The point of the tabernacle is my presence. You enjoying my presence in your midst. And to make sure that it happens, even with something as important as the tabernacle, stop, rest, and know me. And that will secure that once the tabernacle is constructed and I dwell there, that will help ensure that you're actually enjoying my presence as you ought to be enjoying it. The Sabbath, I've said this a number of times, is about knowing God. That's what he intended for them to do in a special way. On that day, they were to devote themselves to worshiping and knowing him. And I think we can see that in the text. In 31.13, verse 13, he says, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So there's something about the Sabbath. is about them knowing God, God who sanctifies them, God who sets them apart, God who redeems them out of Egypt, makes them his treasured possession. And it's, that's not the only place that it says that over and again. That is said, Exodus 20:12. God rehearsing what happened in Exodus. If I said Exodus, I meant to say Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20:12. God recounting through Ezekiel what had happened in the past. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And in that same chapter, Ezekiel 20, then in verses 19 and 20, I am the Lord your God, walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may know, excuse me, and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. God intended for the Sabbath to be a day for his people to know him in a particular way. And as it's As it's restated in Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And this is a part of rehearsing the fourth commandment. You were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God is helping them to remember He who redeemed them out of slavery he wants them to press on to know Him. Not just a one time, wow, wasn't that amazing when God delivered us out of Egypt and spread the waters and killed all the, the, the soldiers of Pharaoh. No, He wants their knowledge of Him to be ongoing. And so you can see even their rest is a privilege and a responsibility. Their rest is a, what a privilege just for God to say, stop, rest, and know me. But it's also responsibility because part of what made them separate and peculiar and caused people to say, look, what's up with that nation was the fact that for them to display God's glory, they needed to, as a nation, obey. And in obeying, it required great trust. They had to trust God to provide. So where does, where does that fit into the New Testament church? As I said before, we're not trying to reinstitute the Sabbath, but I think from what God was seeking to accomplish in Israel through the Sabbath, we can come away with some helpful principles. 
And just to clarify, um, Scripture clearly says that the Sabbath and most everything else in Exodus is Colossians 2.17. It's, those things were just the, the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so in any principles that we draw away, we're not trying to place ourselves under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. Things are different. But I would say, as we gather here on Sundays, and Sunday is, if you have a Saturday night service, I don't think that's a problem. But Sundays does seem to be appropriate. The original Sabbath comes at the end of the first creation. And Jesus, in his resurrection, dawns the age of the new creation. There's a new age. There's a new order. And it dawned the day that he rose from the grave. So it would make sense. And it seems to be why the church from early days met on Sundays. There's something new happening. Our Savior's risen. So Sundays just make sense in light of all that Christ Accomplished. And on Sundays, as we gather, we celebrate the rest Christ has purchased for us at the cross. We celebrate that rest and we rest knowing we don't have to labor. We don't have to earn anything. It's been paid for. We cease our works and we trust completely in his. So there is a as we gather on Sundays, there is this rest. We come to be rest, rest, to be refreshed. And we look backward to what Christ has done, what He's accomplished, but we also look forward to a future rest. I think the Sabbath was always meant to point forward to a future rest, a rest that we don't get until the new heavens and the new earth. There is a rest that will be eternally ours, and we come here to be reminded, to be renewed, as we're weary from being on mission throughout the week, we're scattered throughout the week, we gather here, and we come and we're reminded, not just of the past work of the cross, but the future wet the future rest that is ours because of what Christ accomplished in the cross. And that gives us hope. Set your hope completely on the hope that is to be revealed. First Peter 1. And that's what this is about. We're looking forward to a future rest because we, we should be weary. Building the churches, it's a weary work. Not because it's burdensome in the sense that uh, we don't like it or it's just a drag, but it's, it's hard work and it's disappointing. We remember as we gather that our lot by nature isn't eternal rest, but rather eternal torment. I find it really interesting that if you look at some of Scripture's description of hell, I'm thinking of Revelation 14, part of what hell consists of is no rest. And the smoke, Revelation 14:11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. That's a picture of hell. And that that was us. That's what we were headed to until Christ intervened. And so we gather, we remember in this setting that we've been saved from that. But just like God didn't call Israel just to be a happy holy nation and just to kind of sit there, he designed for them to reflect glory and similarly, but even more aggressively for the church, Israel come and see church go and tell we're renewed, we're reminded of what our lot is. So if we were to walk out tonight and in seeking to fulfill the mission that God's entrusted to us, if we're taken out, it's okay. That means rest eternally. But if we don't go, yes, God is sovereign, but He has said He will use people. He will use us. If we don't go, the people who are currently headed towards eternal torment without rest, they have no opportunity for rest. No one will be lost who God has chosen, but He uses 
people. So they have to hear. They have to hear the message or they will have no rest day or night. And so, like I said earlier, I don't think as we think about rest, I don't think it's going to change anything you do. Maybe in terms of structure, probably still going to keep coming, gathering here on Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. But if 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 for Israel, the Sabbath was so significant for knowing God and enjoying him and delighting in him. Should not that be our focus as well as we gather the way that we spend our time, perhaps before and after? I'm not not saying you can't have fun or or even work. There's no sin there. But just this sense of if nothing about the 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 heart of the law in the old is lightened in the sense that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he makes it even more spiritual, more intense. And so if we're supposed to get to know God in, under the old covenant, how much more under the new as we gather as God's people, should there be an, a zeal to know him? And I would just say, by way of reminder, that should be our focus corporately to know him and to be useful in one another's lives to help one another know him so that we'd be equipped to help those that don't yet know him as we go out. So in conclusion, as God's holy people, we have the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's holy work and God's holy rest. I'm just wondering, are we feeling the privilege? Are we heeding the responsibility? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Your call in our lives. We thank You for making us Your chosen people, a holy people. We want to be obedient to that. We don't have to be obedient to earn anything. All has been given in Jesus. But we want to respond to the Gospel. We want to respond to the gifts of Your Spirit. We want to be faithful to engage in the holy work of building the church, expanding the church that You've called us to. But we also want to rest. We want to cease from our works and consider Your work. And we want to regularly be looking toward that future rest so that we have hope and motivation to endure for the work that You've called us to. God, even as we turn towards another sign, bread and, uh, and wine, We'd be reminded of all that was sacrificed to bring us to everlasting rest. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you for these people. Amen.